brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Softweb Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Soft Rep Radio, on time, on target. I'm Ian Scotto. I hope that all of you are having an awesome new year and enjoyed your New Year's Eve celebration. Some of you guys might still be hungover. Uh, as some of you guys may know, I don't I don't really drink anymore these days. So I was not hungover at all. And I put together some of this show on January 1st, in fact, and am putting the finishing touches on today as you're hearing this. So I was wondering, what should I do for the big New Year 2019 show? I was looking at the top 10 most played episodes of 2018, and I looked at those top 10, and I figured, let me give you five of those, five of my favorite that we did out of those. And uh, they're just some awesome interviews here. So we'll get right into those. But before we do, be sure to check out Crate Club. We have different tiers of membership, depending on how prepared you want to be, and gift options are available as well. Scott Whitner from the Loadout Room and the guys are currently working on bringing you 100% custom products in 2019. Everything from sunglass cases to EDC bags and other manly products. It's a club for men, by men. You can check that all out at CrateClub.us. Once again, that's CrateClub.us. Also, as a reminder for those listening, I'm sure a lot of you guys are already members of the Spec Ops channel, but for a limited time, you can receive a 50% discounted membership to the Spec Ops channel. That's our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. The Spec Ops channel premiere show, Training Cell, follows former Special Operations Forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country. Everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and much more. Again, you can watch that content by subscribing to the Spec Ops channel. That's at specopschannel.com and take advantage of a limited time offer of 50% off your membership. Only $4.99 a month, specopschannel.com. Go there now. Last thing I'm going to mention before we get into this great content is something new 
You heard me talk about it last episode, the News Rep Financial Report, exclusive information that you can act on today to secure a brighter future for tomorrow. The News Rep Financial Report can help you discover new investment strategies in the defense sector. Defense industry stocks can be a lucrative investment if you buy at the right time. Our team of foreign policy, security, and military experts provide real-time intelligence for stocks based on global trends that affect financial markets in the national defense industry. By subscribing now, you'll get exclusive access to our industry expertise. The NewsRep Financial Newsletter Advantage. Our team offers unmatched defense industry familiarity and expertise, unbiased knowledge of geopolitical trends, full access to NewsRep's foreign policy, security, and financial intelligence platform, and access to our team of experts and analysts. Go to thenewsrep.com. Click on FinRep, and you'll see it right there. The newsrep.com, FinRep tab. Check it out. All right, with that, guys, here are five of my favorite episodes of the year that were in the top 10 most played of this year. The first is actually our most listened to episode ever. People really dug it. This is episode 322, Mike Vining, Vietnam EOD. And this is about his Vietnam experience going into Vietnam in the Army and becoming an EOD, and also the tragic death of his teammate, Ken Foster. A lot of you have heard it before. Like I said, it's our most listened to episode, but it's the type of interview that you can listen to over and over again, and you'll get some new stuff out of it. So here's Mike Vining from episode 322. I really wanted to go to Vietnam. That was the whole purpose of me enlisting um, was to go to Vietnam to serve my country and to see what the ground truth was in Vietnam. You know, a lot of people talked about whether we should be there or not. Most of those people who talked about it never were there. Um, and so I wanted to find out for myself. So I put in paperwork three times before I got orders, came down on orders for Vietnam. So... So you were, you had the, you know, luckily, you know, a lot of draftees kind of went straight to Vietnam after their initial training. It sounds like, you know, you had uh, quite a bit of training before you landed in Vietnam. Well, yes. In in the EOD program, they wanted you to, before you, they didn't want to send you right from EOD school to Vietnam. They wanted you to spend at least a year in the field working, doing EOD work prior to going to Vietnam. Now, that changed later in the war, and I knew several people that went right from school to Vietnam, but uh, they wanted you to have at least a year's experience before you went to Vietnam. And when you, when you arrived in country um, and you started to do your job, uh, I, and I know you f- were involved in disposing of some fairly large uh, you know, caches of enemy munitions, uh, what what did you find in Vietnam? What what was the ground truth you uncovered there? <laughs> what was the ground truth in Vietnam? Um, my opinion was that you know, in the rural countryside, it didn't matter who what what form of government was in Saigon. Um, they were still going to go out and harvest their rice and. And life was still going to, you know, they were just trying to make, live to subsistence out in the real country. You know, you had a 
corrupt government, uh, pretty corrupt uh, in place. Um, you know, I didn't know all about the, you know, the reasons why and stuff like that. But as far as EOD went, I learned in one year, you know, I learned what, you know, it would probably take at least 10 years to learn stateside. Uh, it was an intense one year. You know, what uh, as a you know bomb disposal technician? Uh, what was you know your actual job? What did that consist of? I, I mean, I can certainly talk about some of the experiences are uh, seeing EOD guys work in Iraq when I was over there. Mm-hmm. But what, what was it like for Vietnam um, doing your job there? Well, I, w- I was assigned to the 99th Ordnance Detachment EOD at Phuc Vinh. Uh, it was also known as Camp Gorvad. It was later changed to Cap. Casey, named after General Casey of the 1st Cav, who died, uh, I think, in May of 1970, his plane, his helicopter, and they ran into a mountain and everybody on board his helicopter was killed. So they named Fire Support Base after him. As for the job, we would, um, we were like a fire department. We had a 10-man unit. Uh, we would wait for the call to come in. Some unit would request, usually through the brigade. First, we supported for all of First Cav's Divi- First Cavalry Division's operations uh, in the northwest corner of Three Corps. We supported a little bit of First Infantry Division in our area and 199th Light Infantry Brigade. So anybody called us, they had a booby trap. They came across an enemy bunker complex that was booby-trapped. Before they would move in, they would call us. Um, if they found some tunnels and stuff that proved too dangerous, like in one case, uh, this office lieutenant went into a tunnel and there was booby-trapped. He was actually blown out of the tunnel, uh, grenade, and uh, wounded in medevac. So after that, nobody would go into the tunnel. So then we went into the tunnel. Um, you know, if they find dead ordnance out in the field, like a 500 pound bomb, it didn't go off. They call us and we'd get rid of it. And, you know, the enemy cache sites, we would dispose of it. Any, any problem like that with ordnance, they would give us a call and we would fly in normally in two man teams. Uh, they, they would provide us transportation. We'd go to the helicopter pad get on the helicopter, go in, link up with the team, sometimes have to walk into the site and do the mission, then fly out and go to the next mission. Most missions just were day missions, but uh, some of the missions were as long as a week. That must have been a pretty interesting experience as a young man that, you know, you suddenly have a lot of responsibility put on you and you're working. It sounds like just you and one other guy. Yes, we operated just uh, usually in two-man teams, depending, you know, we might request more EOD, uh, depending on the size of the operation, would ask for help. But normally we would uh, fly in, we would have three days worth of food and water that we would carry. I carry two haversacks, one to two haversacks of explosives, so either 20 to 40 pounds of C4 priming systems and everything and we'd fly in. If we needed anything more than that, the unit that was on the ground would have to supply us with more explosives, bring it in. And 
after um, after your year in Vietnam, you know, when you returned home, what could you talk a little bit about coming back home? And I, I take it you wanted to remain in the military. No, I didn't. Oh, really? <laughs> I um, Vietnam War was winding down when I got. I was asked to extend, uh, and uh, I was asked to do some work, classified work in Cambodia, where you'd wear civilian clothes. But everything was winding down, so I didn't think the military was for me. So I actually was discharged after ah, Vietnam. Ah, okay. Uh, and I was out for two and a half years. Uh, went to Michigan. I worked for its company that uh, uh, was a press operator, building, stamping out body parts for Ford cars in Michigan. Um, but after two and a half years of doing that and seeing that this job was really a, you know, going nowhere, it's a good paying job, but really I wasn't satisfied, uh, I tried to go back in. And this is, of course, after Vietnam, you know, the Army was downsizing. At first they said um, I couldn't go back into the Army. They said they weren't taking anybody. But then when I checked later, they said that I could go back in, but it'd have to go back in as EOD. And I said, that's great. <laughs> so I went back in in October of 73, and I was assigned to the 63rd Ordnance Detachment EOD at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. Uh, I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit about your friend, um, Ken Foster, who passed away yeah. in what, you know, what today the public <laughs> knows quite well as an IED at that time, I, uh, you know, I imagine it, it wasn't something that was in the public consciousness the way it is today. No, it wasn't. Uh, one of the things you do in EOD is you do uh, Secret Service VIP support. You know, uh, all, today all four services provide support for bomb disposal support for Secret Service. The military does, you know, if they go into any place, uh, a building, that he's got, there's a speaking engagement. It's the military EOD that work with the Secret Service that go in and help clear that area and then stand by in case something's discovered. So 1976, I spent the that year basically on the road doing Secret Service support, the presidential campaign of 1976. It was in Quincy, Illinois in October of 76. Uh, I don't recall the exact date, but we were Senator uh, Bob Dole was speaking in Quincy, Illinois. He was running for Ford as Ford's vice president. So we he was speaking at the high school. And uh, so after his speaking engagement was done uh, that evening, Ken Foster and I we were working as a two man team. We went to, out to eat for supper. And while we were eating, we heard explosions going off in town. So they, the county sheriff, the Secret Service, and another two-man EOD team responded to these, the explosion site, one at a bridge. Uh, there was uh, four explosions at this um, – well, it was three explosions at this uh, Coke compressor factory. And um, they just went and – responded, you know, just seen a lot of damage at the bridge and at the factory. But there, at that time, there was no threat called in. There was just these explosions going off in town. So the next morning, uh, 
Senator Doe was leaving by charter plane at the airport. We searched all the luggage and stuff that was going on the charter plane. And uh, while we were doing that, a bomb threat came in against Senator Dole at the airport. And so, but we knew we had searched everything. We did a good job. So we said, there's nothing more here to do. So they got on the airplane and took off and everything was fine. The county sheriff asked us to go out after we got released from Secret Service support to go out and look at the damage and just to give our opinion of what took place that night. So we went out there, and at the Colt Compressor Factory, the fire they were doing a, continued the search. The fire department was, and then they found another bomb that had not gone off. It IED, or back then it was just a homemade bomb. It was several sticks of dynamite, a large uh, alarm clock, a uh, six-volt battery. So they took a Polaroid of it, and where the bomb was actually placed in a trailer of a truck. The whole trailer of this truck was a compressor. That's what they made at the factory. So um, they took a picture. Then they closed the sliding door on the bomb. And then when we got there, we were told that they had found a bomb that had not exploded and then we saw look at the Polaroid picture. But you had to walk down between these parked truck trailers, narrow, and uh, so Ken Foster said he'd go down and do a recon. The Illinois arson inspector was there. He'd, he wanted to go down and look at it too. They were just going down for a recon. I was getting the tools ready in case we have to do something. So Ken went down. The arson inspector stayed out a little ways. Ken went down, op- opened up the sliding door, and not, we don't know exactly what happened, but we believe when he opened up the sliding door, he looked at the alarm clock, and what they had done is took a screw, put it through the face of the clock, and so it was a When very one simple, of the hands on the clock hits the screw, yeah. it connects the detonator? Yeah. I can't and imagine how scary that must be. It was a simple just... time delay. Mm-hmm. But what... But what happens sometimes is uh, these people, there's uh, usually paint or varnish on the hands, so it doesn't make good electrical contact. So we believe the bombs were all went off about the same time. Wow. This one had timed down but failed to go off. It wasn't making good electrical contact. So I believe Ken thought he needed to do something right then. So normally what you would do is remove the blasting cap, try to remove it out of the dynamite. I think that's what he was trying to do. And that slight movement just moved it enough so it made better electrical contact and it detonated, killing Ken instantly. That has got to be one scary job. Yeah, I mean, you're staring down the barrel of a gun, so to speak. Yes. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, but... Once they found that bomb, they stopped searching for any other explosive devices. So before, you know, there was nothing. Ken was killed instantly. He was very close to the explosion site. And um, so we had to continue to make sure the area was safe. Then we got the coroner down there and put Ken in a body bag. So we had, you know, there was four of us on the team. We had drove up from Fort Bragg to Quincy, Illinois, and... Then only three of us, you know, drove back. So that's lonely. Wow. Also, I didn't, after that bomb went off and killed Ken, 
another bomb threat came in at the high school. So they had to evacuate the high school. So we went to the high school and we contacted, you know, a few teachers and and like the janitors and told them to quit, you know, look at, you know, go around the building in high school to see if there's something there that's out of place that's not normally supposed to be there. Because, you know, we go into a high school, you know, we don't know what's supposed to be there and not supposed to be there. So the people that work there know better. So they did a search of the building and uh, found nothing. But had a couple more bomb threats come in. And then we were relieved by another EOD team from Granite City, Illinois. What was the uh, the motivation for the bombing? <clears throat> you know, I don't know that today. It was a... Two juveniles, teenagers, and a I think he was 28-year-old uh, that had planted the bombs there. The juveniles were acquitted in trial. Uh, the, the, the 28-year-old, I'm trying to think of what his sentence was. It was a he – didn't, he didn't get a sentence for murder. It was for a, a manslaughter charge. Because he didn't intend to hurt anybody, he was just destroying property. I think his ex former girlfriend worked there. Um, she's the one that actually tipped off the police and turned her boy ex boyfriend in. And so basically, he had a f- spent a few years in jail. And uh, just recently. The guy who planted the bombs, his daughter contacted me just, I mean, just maybe a month or two ago. Wow. And uh, she emailed me. And she was 10 years old at the time her dad did that. And um, she had heard stories, but she she never knew she was, knew the truth. So she emailed me and wanted to know the truth. What happened? What did her dad do, really do, and all that. So... I gave her a copy of my report, and I gave her a copy of the newspaper clippings, scanned copies, and gave it to her. That was kind of interesting, being hearing from the the guy who built the bomb's daughter. Yes, I mean it's kind of the past coming full circle. You know, it is. This gentleman was killed all those years ago, Ken Foster, and you know it continues to haunt the people involved. You know, yeah. Her, and and the, his daughter apologized for her dad. Wow. It's, you know, it's just sorry that her dad did all that. Hope you guys enjoyed that. Later this month, we have Ed Derrick coming back. Ed Derrick was one of our most listened to episodes. And uh, this is from episode 315. And he tells the true story of Operation Red Wings. We got some blowback for even having Ed on. But, you know, he gives all of the evidence of what really went down. And it's not what a lot of people think. So if you've never heard this before, this is really eye-opening. Episode 315, Ed Derrick. What are your findings on Red Wings versus, you know, say the story that we've been told by the movies? Well, when I wrote the book Victory Point, I based it off after-action reports and um, interviews with people, with intel people, and also, I mean, there was a video made and <laughs> this video, there's two video made, videos made and you can see there's seven people total, total seven. Now I said in my book, eight to 10, because there possibly could have been like another fire team 
you know, three or four other guys off in another part. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I, people, I didn't get a lot of it, but I got some serious hate mail, death threats and stuff like how dare you say this because Marcus Luttrell was there and he said there was 400 guys and all this and that. Well, as it turns out, um, it was seven. Um, and <laughs> it was the, you know, all this comes from, you know, subsequent intelligence reports. I, I wasn't, I, you know, I have a, interesting relationship with certain units that I've worked with. And so I get access to information and with the caveat of don't explain how this, we got this. And this was 10 years ago. I didn't, I just said signals intelligence. Um, well, since then it's come out this thing called LLVI, maybe you've heard of it, low level voice intercept. They put it on the RC 12 guardrail. They put it on pods. They, they, and these pods were around Satalasar and the low-level voice intercept is like cell phones. It's a 0.6-watt transmitter. Uh, and also radios, two-way radios, and ICOMs. Right. You, know, you know what an ICOM is, and, and sat phones. Walkie-talkies. And, stuff. Yeah, walkie-talkies, two-ways, push-to-talks, PTTs. And, I mean, all this stuff is recorded. And, like, you can track people by their phone. I mean, it's just all sorts of crazy capabilities, and that's what they were doing. And the number seven, and there's one other thing that <laughs> – I continue to work on Red Wings. I'm not going to get into too much detail, but I continue to work on that. I, it's hard to believe because I had been involved with the Red Wings before it was even Red Wings. It was March of 2005 that I met the battalion that actually was <laughs> took it from their sister battalion in, in Afghanistan. They just The battalion at the time just didn't have the intel hits to proceed with it, and they, it was called STARS at that point. And so they took it and they renamed it Red Wings, and they, you know, and then I showed up in Afghanistan a few months after that, and ended up writing a book about it and articles. And it just keeps, it just, it, it, it just has a life of its own. And in subsequent years and pretty recently, there's been a couple other things that have come up that I can say with absolute certainty, it was seven guys. Cause I know that's what you're getting at. Cause that's what people always get upset about. Yeah. How dare you say these Navy SEALs were only up against seven guys. Well, they were, and there's, there's irrefutable stuff at this point to, you know, not just, you know, classified after action reports and even the video made by those guys, there's other stuff out there that definitively answers that question. So, and I think people are realizing now that, yeah, you know, it's, you know, I, I helped write that Newsweek article that it was May of 2016. It was uh, May 16th, I think. And Pat Kinzer, who I was his, I was embedded in his platoon in Afghanistan and they, uh, he's got a great quote in there. He's like, that's total bullshit that there's that many guys. There's, there's not 20 or 30, you know, or 200 people in all the Congo Valley. That, that's and what I was told also. Just, do, you, sorry? do you, sorry, well, you were saying that's what you were told. I was just going to say, do you blame Marcus Luttrell for like what seems like an exaggeration or do you think it could be the result of PTSD or just the heat of the moment that, you, you know, you don't vividly remember every detail of, of a story you were a part of? Um, well, uh, Boy, I, I don't want to use the term blame. Um, and I've been accused of going after Marcus Trail, and I've never done that. All I've ever gone after is the truth. <clears throat> and um, there, is, there, is, there is stuff in command, higher command, that I think that I, I would blame this on. Um, there is a guy, I'm not going to put his name out there, but he was... Uh, in 06 and he um 
three of those four guys had never been in combat before. You know, Danny Deitch was the only one that had ever been in combat. And, and they were you know, also an SDV team sent on a special reconnaissance mission in the mountains. Yep. And you know, you know a lot more about this than I do. This is your forte, but, uh, you know, it's, it's those guys had never trained together. And, um, you know, I've got my own personal theories and once we get a little bit more information, I'll be able to put it out there and that's going to happen in the next few years. But I'm going to keep those personal thoughts to myself right now. But, you know, it was just, um, what has been published, including in my book and then, um, a, a, some technical articles that I've written in one very important article that was written in the Marine Corps Gazette by the battalion commander, second time third Marines. Um, <clears throat> they, it was just a, it was a, it was a command chain breakdown, uh, in so many different levels. It was just, um, there's so much, I mean, we, we can talk for hours about this yeah. you know, from the aviation aspect of it, from the initial planning of it, <clears throat> from the ego side of it. Uh, but there's, there's really one particular guy that all this falls on the shoulders of. I won't say his name, but, um, I'm sure there's some people out there who know. Yeah. I, uh, I think I know and, who you're talking about too, Ed. And I mean, yep. this, this person is involved in floating, um, heroic narratives in more than one incident. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Takagar, Roberts Ridge. Yep. 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 And so, so yep. they take the, they take naval failures and spin them into these like heroic yep. Hollywood scripts. Yep. And I'm not going to speak to anything. Well, I mean, it's a little bit too sacrilegious. I don't want to even go there, but it's, um, you know who I'm talking about and, um, you know, let's just leave it at this and there's going to be, there's going to be more on red wings. There's going to be more stuff on red wings. So I'm working one project right this second. Um, I'm, I'm so, no, I'm happy to actually hear with that. the ranger, with an army ranger. Oh, okay, yeah, so, the two seven five guys that were involved. Yeah, and, and I was going to yep. say your friend Leo Jenkins was one of them, and didn't he write a piece refuting uh, some of what went on? Jen- Jenkins was three seven five. He was in my battalion, and he was um, <coughs> one of the guys that was spun up after it happened, and they quickly rushed them into Afghanistan um, to help search for Luttrell. Yeah, because I remember him writing a yeah. piece for you know about him refuting some of the stuff in the Lone Survivor movie. Yeah. I, I, I think, yeah, the, the Rangers also came to the conclusion that there wasn't some massive firefight with hundreds of people fairly quickly. Oh, yeah. Yep. I mean, I'm going to try to be as careful about this as possible, but there was no 556 brass found. And I, right. you know, that we've already, we've already published that in, um, in the Newsweek article. You're talking um, what about else was the... published in, in the Newsweek article was that, Latrell had all 11 magazines okay, with them, and yeah. they all were filled with, with rounds. So I read that article. So. I remember that. We had Pat McNamara on twice this year. Awesome interview both times, but the last time he was on, we talked a lot of metal, and it was fun with uh, my friend from SiriusXM, Sean the Butcher, who's the voice of Ozzy's Boneyard. You also hear him on Liquid Metal. But this is from episode 336, the first time Pat was on, and we got into some military stuff. So this is from that. This is an excerpt of Pat talking about a halo jump story and also some other stories that we got from our friend in Delta Force, George Hand. Check it out. 
I asked George, I was like, what should we ask Pat? Um, he, he mentioned some story about, um, oh, what was it? Somebody going right through your suspension lines on a halo jump. Um, yeah, dude. See, George, George and I go way back. I'm talking 84, 85. And uh, plus we went to selection together. We went to combat dive school together. Um, I mean, so a, a good and bad thing about a guy like that is he's seen you at your best, but he's also seen you at your worst. Well, oh, so I don't mean to ask like that, anything embarrassing. You don't have to answer, of course. Yeah. No, 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 no. This was, uh, it's, uh, I was this close to retiring and, um, wanted to get one more, uh, jump in just to stay current. And in order to do that, it was like an ash and trash jump, you know, where you had to strap hang with a bunch of freaking people you don't know. Um, and uh, which I freaking hate because I loved uh, free fall and doing MFF with guys I know because, uh, well, it, people you it's, trust. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's dangerous. You could die doing that shit. Um, so I got on th- this pay hurt jump and um, – there was this gal who was, who was on Halo status, and she sat on the plane next to me. And this is all the way up by the <laughs> cockpit. And I'm going, oh, my God, because I knew she was a soup sandwich. I knew she was a football bat, that she was a shit-eating turnip, that she was a chicken wire canoe, <laughs> uh, that she was hot, hockey cleat. And um, so I, I broke protocol, and I achieved separation in the aircraft uh, and I walked all the way down to the tailgate and a buddy of mine was JM and, and I said, Hey Sam, uh, if you want, I could poise or I could, uh, poise out and you guys could dock on me because my free fall skills were really good. Cause I, I had like 600 jumps at the time. Uh, and he goes, okay, good. And we're short final. So I'm standing on the ramp, looking down, he's doing his last commands and I, I uh, I turn around to look in the aircraft, and this freaking chick achieves separate. She she closes the gap in the aircraft. She walked all the way up, and she, I'm face to face with her. So I look at Sam, and I said, "Sam, scratch the poise. I'm going to dive out." He goes, "All right." He's so freaking confused at that point. So I dive out, and I am tracking, man. I am freaking. Whoa! I am getting away from that aircraft because this is probably my last jump. Right. Um, so I am boogieing, man. I'm full Delta. I am boogieing, put on the brakes, boosh, and I turn around and here comes this freaking chick right at me because <laughs> she's flying like this. Uh, one hand or her uh, basically facing the altimeter and hand on ripcord. Oh. So she's in a full track and she doesn't even know it. And she's not she, paying she, attention. Completely oblivious to her surroundings. So I freaking, I dock with her, boom, and I give her one of these. And I said, pay attention, you know, basically pay attention. And uh, she gives me a nod and I, boosh, I achieve separation again. I'm booking, man. And I'm looking out there, checking, 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 wave off, nothing. I, I uh, deploy my chute and like s- seconds after I deploy it, because I'm up trying to break the, uh, uh, I get the brakes out and I felt something. You know, I felt my chute wobble or whatever, but I couldn't see anything because my arms were up like this. Uh, so I, uh, I go into my, uh, my, uh, canopy check, my, um, um, uh, what's it called? My, uh, your four points of performance controllability checks. And I'm looking up and I got closed end cells on one side and I'm like, huh, I've never had closed end cells before. That's weird. Um, so I'm thinking, well, do I cut away? 
you know, you got to, you've only got this much time to think about it. Uh, So I'm looking at the altimeter. I'm going, I'm at 2,500. I'll wait another 500 feet and it's still controllable. And now I'm at 2,000. I go, oh, I'll wait till 1,500 feet. It's still, (laughs) I can still cut away if it's a piece of shit. And, uh, but it was controllable and I end up landing right on, um, right, right in the pit area. And, uh, one of the, uh, 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 guys from the, uh, that the the riggers, one of the riggers, he caught my chute before it hit the ground. Cause they saw me coming in with end cells and he's inspecting it. And he goes, Holy shit. And there was a freaking gigantic hole in this thing. And I'm thinking, what in the hell? And here comes this freaking chick with her Gentex helmet on, big red face, and a huge chunk of my canopy sticking out of her helmet. <laughs> oh my and god! He goes, "Oh man, that sucked." And I go, "You threw, you threw, threw, you flew through my fucking canopy." I was so freaking pissed. I wanted to punch her right in the head. Oh my god, it was horrible. Yeah, but and that the anyway. evidence was still clinging to her face when she came down. It was, it was stuck in her Gentex helmet. There's no denying <laughs> that. There's no denying that. <laughs> God. Yeah, thanks, George, for that one. Well, the uh, other funny thing, I, I can't remember what I what I asked George, but um, something about hand-to-hand combat, and he, he just made this offhand comment. He's like, yeah, for PT in the morning, I used to have to box Pat McNamara and Josh Collins. Lucky oh. me. <laughs> is that his funny yeah, comment? I can just imagine. George is cutting himself short because that guy's <laughs> a really good man. He was his kickboxing skills were ridiculous. Uh, so I was I was bottom wrong compared to those two guys. I was bigger and stronger, but those guys can hit and box well. But yeah, I mean, getting hit by Josh Collins, who was pro, you know, he, yeah. he had pro fight. That guy, I mean, when he hits you in the bread basket, he comes around, boosh, boosh, with the massive freaking hooks. You are going down on delayed effect. I mean, his, yeah. So I uh, I definitely know what it feels like by getting punched in the face by both of those guys. And it ain't fun. Uh, maybe George is downplaying it because he made it sound like he was the one who had a handful with both of you. Nah, nah, nah. He, he way, he's way better, way better, way better. Yeah, yeah. His boxing skills were ridiculous back then. Yep. Yeah, he's being humble. Yeah, he is. A lot of you guys know that I met Brandon, and uh, which later led to me doing this, through the radio host I formerly worked with, Andrew Wilkow. And Wilkow is just a great guy. I love having him on. I'm glad that you know we still hang out regularly, and he's always been very supportive of me. When Brandon wanted to bring me on board, Andrew was fully on board with it, and uh, it meant a lot. A lot of radio hosts uh, might want to like selfishly keep staff to themselves, and uh, but no, he he loved the fact that Brandon wanted to advance what I'm doing and with what I'm doing here at Soft Rep Radio. This is a cool clip because we talk about how Steve Bannon was working at Sirius XM long before he was in the Trump administration, and uh, the slight relationship Andrew had with him. Then we also get into national security threats, and of course hyperbolic news and the hyperbolic news media. This is from episode 318. If you want to hear it in its entirety, Andrew Wilkow. Before Steve Bannon was Steve Bannon, I just knew him as a guy who filled in for you. Yeah, it, it was, <laughs> you know, I, I've, I've had people like, oh, you and Bannon. I'm like, I had, I, 
was around Bannon a couple of times. There's the funny photograph that Mike will show you. He was uh, at CPAC and he was broadcasting and I just kind of walked behind him when the cameras were there and started doing a yoga pose <laughs> while he was in the middle of some kind of thing. He didn't even like seem to know I was there. And after CPAC, I saw him. He used to sit at this coffee house on the first floor of our building. But yep, I remember there that. was very few interactions between myself and him. He was never in the office when I was yep. there. I, I never went to any of the Breitbart embassy parties. Um, I kind of shy away from, you know, when we're at the RNC or CPAC, the kind of after parties that yeah. go on and sometimes go on too too late into the night. <laughs> I, I, I just kind of make my way back to my hotel room. I have a few drinks, you know, Mike, you guys, whoever. But uh, I'm, I'm not I'm not a, a scene a party scene sure. person. So I you know I don't I didn't really spend that much time with him. I just thought it was interesting because I don't think any of us would have predicted that Stephen K. Bannon would be like one of the most famous men in America. Notorious, yeah, notorious. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I, I you know I did, I got to be honest, didn't see it coming either. Yeah. Um, so I'm looking at the questions here. This is actually a good question. It's connected to what I just asked. But uh, to Dale Esslinger watching on Facebook Live. Uh, what's the biggest national security threat that the mainstream media isn't reporting? That's You're asking yeah, just, for yeah, both that, of that's, you, really. That's, but. Um, well, I, I w- I've said on, I, I think it was on your program, or no, maybe it was, uh, no, it was on your program when you had a guest host. Um, and I said uh, China. And actually, since that time, I think the media has picked up on that story that China is a revisionist power and a serious threat to the United States. And I think that that's being covered now a lot more than um, than it, it was, you know, say two years ago. Well, I think one of the, the things the media is ignoring, and we've had Gordon Chang on about this. There was great. A, there was a story that was actually in Chinese media that one of their test sites, I believe the place, and I want to try to pronounce this right, I don't want to insult it, it was Punji Ri. They had a, a, a test fail that caused an avalanche. And Chinese scientists were warning the Chinese government, like, hey, maybe their safety standards aren't up to par. And I didn't see much in the in the media about this that, you know, maybe it was time to kind of work with the Chinese, because if the North Koreans are ill-equipped to handle nuclear weapons, think about what a misfire would do EMP-wise to China. So, you know, given that we have a trade relationship, their economy relies on, on trade partners us being the trade partners, European trade partners. Let's try to use trade and the fact that the North Koreans might be not the best at handling this kind of stuff, kind of like, you know, like this. Um, Maybe we could encourage them to be better allies or partners in dealing with North Korea because, you know, potentially if the North Koreans have a misdetonation, it would have effects for China, negative consequences for China. How about this uh, Hawaii uh, fake the missile false, launch? The fake news? Yeah, that was crazy, That's right? That's scary. I mean, imagine getting one of those, that there's ICBMs incoming. Yeah, especially, you know, imagine it here. People people get a text that Starbucks ran out of pumpkin spice. You know, like... <laughs> then freak out. Right? You put that. I was oh. saying, imagine that text was in Texas as opposed to, like, Hawaii. I feel like people would be, like, gearing up for the zombie apocalypse immediately. I, you know, I, I, I guess because I didn't get the text... Some part of me thinks that I would wait for confirmation, you know, because my my wonder was, you know, when people put you in those situations, what would you do if the plane was going down? Right. Well, what if the plane didn't go down? (laughs) What, what, What if you thought you were about to get hit with a nuclear weapon and you only had a half hour to live? 
but then you don't get hit with a nuclear <laughs> weapon. You know, it's like, I have expl- some explaining to the neighbors to do. Uh, <laughs> you know, you know like, what, what, did anyone act on that in the sort of like, hey, I got a half hour to live. What do I do with that half hour? And then the half hour is up when you're still there. And they're, they're broke in a strip club yeah. somewhere. <laughs> yeah, it's like, ooh, uh, that's going to leave a mark. Uh, <laughs> I wonder if there is that story out there. Well, we saw um, everyone saw putting people, putting kids in the sewer. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I would want to believe that that it, it, you would you would see that and go okay I need I need more I need yeah, I need yeah. more I need more clarification here like you know um it reminded me of the story that you hear about War of the Worlds that when they right. announced that an alien invasion happened yeah, in, 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 the in, yeah, in New Jersey and people were freaking out. I was like, hold on, hold on a second. Yeah, I, I feel like culturally we've also been kind of desensitized because like true. every time there's like a thunderstorm, you get a little word on your phone, the weather channel's going crazy, saying we're all going to die, there's a flash flood coming, blah, blah, blah. They're running out of pumpkin spice. When I, I mean, what, <laughs> what, what was that term they were using for that snowstorm? It snowed like six inches? Oh, like snowmageddon. I didn't. No, I drove it was like, right it was through like it. Death cyclone. Oh, or oh some cyclone shit. bomb or something. What the like fuck? That. I, I drove right through it in my truck. <laughs> it a I, I drove. I just put my car in four wheel drive and went right through it like it wasn't even there. So yeah, I wonder if, if that like that message did go out. Well, to, like, that's America back to your mainstream media thing that you know causing a panic. You know, and this is this is a fear that when you when you have. 24 hour coverage of snowmageddon or the cyclone bomb. Got to hype it, and then. You get three inches of snow, and people aren't dead. The power grid hasn't gone down. You know there isn't there isn't like war for the last gallon of milk. You know how many times do you cry wolf before people go, and yeah. then you get a text: nuclear weapons being launched. If you want to check that out in its entirety, that's episode three eighteen with Andrew Wilkow. All of this is available on the archives. Um, these are all available on SoundCloud since they're relatively recent, um, or Apple Podcasts or anywhere else. But uh, you could also visit softrepradio.com and hear all of this. Now, I'm saving this one for last. When we had Dan Crenshaw on, he wasn't a name that everybody knew. Now he really is. I mean, I saw a tweet from Candace Owens calling him the future of the Republican Party. And uh, ever since he's been elected to Congress... He's a name that people know really ever since the SNL debacle, which led to, uh, you know, a really funny but also uh, touching moment for America where people got together and put their differences aside. Um, So this is Dan Crenshaw when he was on with us. And we had a really candid discussion, as you'll hear. Uh, I mean, we had a frank discussion about foreign policy, which Jack got into with Dan. And we also hear about him losing his eye in combat and leaving the military to go back to school. Also, the process of running for office. Uh, Huge congrats to Dan on becoming a member of Congress, and we're looking forward to seeing what he does. This is from episode 316. I'm thinking of like Austin 316. Dan Crenshaw is pretty badass himself. So 316, Dan Crenshaw, check it out. For the first time on with us, Dan Crenshaw running for Congress in the 2nd District of Texas as a Republican, former SEAL Team 3, uh, 10-year combat vet, also, uh, reading your bio, master's in public administration from the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. So you've done more than just special operations, which is a lot in itself, of course. Um, thanks for coming on, man. 
Oh, thanks for having me. You know, I, I'm a fan of, uh, of all the things you guys put out, so it's, it's an honor to be here. Awesome. Hey, well, the first thing I was going to ask you about before we get into like any real questions, I was just out of curiosity. Um, Drew Wallace, who runs all of our stuff for Soft Rep TV, is the one who made the connection. So I was wondering how you go back with Drew. And then also uh, Jason Kanitzer, our um, head of brand, was like, I've met Dan. He's a solid guy. So hearing a lot of good things about you. Oh, yeah, thanks. Uh, they're great guys. Um, uh, Drew and I, how did we get connected? <laughs> I guess uh, oh, through, through another mutual friend at Oakley. Um, you know, we just hit it off real well. Um, you know, and, uh, despite his Ranger background, (laughs) (laughs) um, but no, great, great guy. And, um, you know, I'm glad to see he's doing well, um, working with y'all now, but, uh, yeah, I was, uh, talked to them a lot at Oakley and they took a special interest in me and and feeling sorry for me and giving me, uh, sunglasses (laughs) when I needed them. Uh, you know, with my, my one good eye, uh, it needs to be specially protected. It's pretty sensitive to the light. So they, uh, they helped me out a lot with that. Hey, Dan, it's Jack. Thanks for coming on the show today. Hey, thank you, Jack. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I, uh, I guess a, a good way to start this uh, interview today is uh, I wanted to ask you, so what made you decide to run for Congress? I mean, you had this uh, pretty incredible background in the military and then going to Harvard. And then what was this just sort of like the natural next step for you? Uh, not, you know, not, not initially, but... Um not something I hadn't thought of, you know, I, we, we, we had discussed it, me and my wife, um, in the past and, you know, how, cause the real question is how do you, how do you make an impact? How do you continue sure. making an impact? Um, you know, my entire life I'd wanted to be a Navy SEAL, you know, really since like age 12, you know, you read a book and, uh, you're hooked and you're hooked <laughs> to the adventure and the patriotism and, uh, the elitism of it. And that's just what I wanted to do. And so when that's all sort of wrapping up and coming to an end, uh, what do you do with your life? And, you know, I, I knew a couple of things. I knew that I really can't get up in the morning for anything that doesn't really give me a sense of fulfillment. And, um, the SEAL teams, I think did that for me. And, um, and I think they did that for me because of the, the, the intensity of it, the, um, the impact that you, that you're having and, you know, that dedication to public service and, and serving your country and the way that makes you feel, um, and, and, and the good you see it does uh, for your country and how, and how critical it is. And um, I think there's a, there's a ton of ways to serve your country. And so I think the way I do it best, I, you know, it's, it's through leadership, through the leadership I learned in the teams and bringing that kind of credibility and passion and inspiration to Congress. And, uh, you know, and showing people what leadership actually means. It's not just, it's not just authority. People didn't, or, you know, my, my guys didn't follow me through minefields and into dangerous, scariest environments, imaginable type places, um, unless they'd actually believed that you were the right guy for the job. Yeah, you know, yes, you have some sort of authority over them, but they're not following you because of the bars at your collar. And um, I think anybody in the military would agree with that. And it shouldn't be really be any different uh, for your elected representatives. You should You should truly be able to say that you believe in them and that they've got your back. And that's, that's the kind of leadership I want to show um, for the people of Texas. I was reading on your website about how, you know, you uh, describe how you lost one eye and, you know, went temporarily blind in the other eye. 
um, you know, when you're uh, caught in an IED strike. And I, I've interviewed other veterans about this, but I wanted to ask your take because this is always um, very interesting to hear about, you know, how people bounce back. And I noticed that you went on a, a couple more deployments after that injury. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, the recovery process and how you kind of jumped back in the saddle. Of course. Um, yeah. So you know, I got hit, lost. I was blinded immediately. Um, knocked over, didn't really lose consciousness, but I, I was, I was torn up pretty bad. Uh, one of our Afghan interpreters had stepped on an IED pressure plate right in front of me and, um, he was dismembered right away. And I took the blast, uh, cause I was only a couple feet away and, and looking right at him. So, uh, I didn't, I was blind, but I didn't, I don't think I quite realized I was blind in the sense that I figured it was just dirt in my eyes or, or something along those lines. So there was a long period, which really never ended by the way, <laughs> a period of self, of self-deception where I was, I was never really blind. I mean, physically I was, but I really didn't think of it that way. Um, I was able to walk it off and get to the medevac helo and, um, they put me out right away. And I woke up about five days later, still blind, of course, um, now completely missing my right eye because it had been, been removed in, uh, in surgery in Kandahar. And, uh, so I woke up in Germany and, you know, the, their message to me was essentially, you, you might see again out of your left eye. It's not, it's not looking so great. You've got a cataract, so we have to stabilize you and then get you to Bethesda where we'll, we'll actually do the operation. And, again, that kind of self-deception kicks in where I really just didn't believe them. <laughs> you, know? you didn't want um, to. I don't know. I it just didn't. It, it wasn't like a there – was, there was really – there was – there was no pushing and pulling inside my brain. Like it was just like, okay, you're saying there's a chance, I guess there's a chance. And, 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 and that's just how I thought. And it, frankly, it was probably better for my mental health. That that's how I thought. And, um, but, but I was hallucinating constantly too. Uh, cause, I, cause like I said, I was blind, but still seeing what I, what I, where I had just been. So I was constantly seeing Afghanistan, all over my hospital room, um, in dreams and then waking up from dreams and still seeing those hallucinations. It's a very weird, awful experience. Um, so we eventually get through that and, uh, you know, of course, proving the doctors, um, proving their negativity wrong by, by, by actually recovering and actually eventually gaining full sight in my left eye, not perfect sight by any means. I mean, I, you know, I still have to wear a very specialized contact to see anything at all. But um, we got through it, and you know why? Why keep going? And and you know, not medically retired from the military right then and there. And I don't know. That just wasn't that wasn't an option. You know, I, I think <laughs> people ask me that a lot, and it's kind of a tough question because I never really wrestled with it. There, there was there was never a moment where I thought, oh, I, I mean, I should probably get out of the military now. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> that 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 conversation never occurred. Um, the only conversations that occurred were which you know, can I go back into a platoon or do I have to do other kind of deployments? Like what kind of service can I continue right. doing? Not really. Should I continue? It was just, it was just never a conversation that I had. It was never something I wrestled with. So it's a hard question to answer. Um, uh, it's uh, the best way to answer is like, you, you know, you're going to have to do better than that to keep me from <laughs> continuing, uh, service and, and continue serving with my brothers. Uh, you're going to have to do more than take away my sight. 
I think it's I think. great that they that they let guys who have been injured stay in. You know, even if they, you know, I mean, sometimes they can requalify and become, you know, ground guys again, putting boots to asses. But even if that's not possible, you know, for those guys to stay around and you know work in some other capacity in their unit or in the military and um, kind of have that sense of brotherhood and leave the military on their, their own terms, I think it's good for the military and I think it's good for them personally too. It is. We invest a lot of time and money and training into our people, and we should be looking for ways to keep them. Frankly, I don't. I don't you know, I, I don't know if the Navy does a great job of that. I think the Army and Marine Corps do a little bit better because uh, I, I, I fought it. This is there's a lot of fighting on my part to, to stay in. And, they they and wanted to again. medically discharge you. Yeah, it's they they don't because they don't because you know the Navy SEALs are only a very tiny part of the rest of the Navy. And so the, you know, when you go up to BUMED, they're not, they're not really accustomed to seeing kind of combat injuries right, and, right. and the waivers that you need in order to stay active and, and deployable. Right. Uh, so it's, it's it, that those, those conversations are harder to have. Whereas, you know, when they are in the army, I've seen it be, be a little bit easier, but um, it, it's something we should, we should do. I mean, you know, and again, I did redeploy, um, but more in Intel related roles, uh, still, still in a way that I felt was, was impactful and fulfilling. So I'm very proud of that and happy to would have kept doing it. Um, but eventually we got to a point where, um, even, even that was a little bit too much for the, you know, the, the stricter rules and, 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 and kind of maintaining the medical standards that they wanted to. So it, it, it made sense to medically retire me in 2016. So when you got out, you went um, back to school. Could you talk a little bit about continuing your education as a uh, as a SEAL veteran? Because, I mean, there's a lot of dudes out there, of course, who are leaving the military. I was one of them in uh, 2010 getting out and that process of going back to school. Of course. Um, and you're, you're looking for that transition, right? And you're right. looking for a bridge into the civilian world because there really is no obvious way to do that you know so the, the first thing i really thought of is okay like what, what gets me up in the morning kind of like what i was talking about before well things that get me up in the morning are are service to the american people serving something greater than myself and i and i felt that i got that out of the military um you know, where else can i get that you know where else because i don't want a job i want a new mission and you know that, that's harder it, it really limits your choices <laughs> um but uh, I went to the Kennedy School because it's the Kennedy School of Government and because it's all about public service. And, and I was interested in policy, not just national security policy, you know, sort of my wheelhouse, but economic policy, healthcare policy, immigration issues. I mean, things that concern voters at a very low level, you know, at the local state level, um, I, I'm getting more and more interested in politics. And so that was really the natural choice for me. Now, what I did with that degree, I wasn't 100% sure yet. I'd, I thought that uh, after you graduated from Harvard, they just handed you a job and on a silver <laughs> platter. And turns out it's not that way at all. <laughs> so, um, you know, so, but, I, but after graduating and I was really looking for a way to serve again, you know, I, I was really only looking at either government jobs or, or um, you know, jobs in, on, in Congress, something along those lines. Um, I worked with uh, Congressman Pete Sessions for a while just to I really wanted to reconnect with Texas. That was my, goal above all else but um i'm sure all veterans have really come across this it's just it's hard it's hard to uh, you know a lot of people want to meet with you they want to they want to hear your story and tell you how great you are and how appreciative they are of your service but they're still going to hire the guy or gal who'd been answering phones and in, in that industry or whatever right, it is right. for the last couple of years 
you know, and they don't, they don't realize how quickly veterans can learn and adapt and overcome and get back on their feet. What do you think of, you know, today, the, the situation in America? Well, not just today. It's always been like this, I think, to a large extent that the, our politicians are largely lawyers. And, you know, you're a guy who actually has real deal military experience and also uh, majored in public policy. I mean, that kind of brings a different background to the fold, doesn't it? It does. It's a, it's a necessary background. Um, I, I agree. There's so many lawyers in the, in the legislature. And, um, right, because it's a, you're a lawmaker, so people assume that you should be a lawyer before you become a lawmaker. Right, right. And, and it's just not, that's just not true. But, you know, having worked on the Hill, like I understand how these things have it. You're a policymaker. Yes, yes, you're writing laws, but you're not the one physically writing the laws. Your law degree doesn't help you in, in this, uh, you know, unless you want to be on the Judiciary Committee or something like that, then those guys should probably be lawyers. But, you know, it, it's certainly not a requirement. Um, and actually, a lot of people I'm running against in this primary are, are, are mainly businessmen, only a couple lawyers here and there. And it's too bad because I had all these lines about if you're sick of having lawyers <laughs> as your politicians, and vote for me. But it turns out both my competition isn't lawyers. Uh, but, uh, well, what do you, you know, talking, Ian and I were having this conversation earlier, and I, I won't interject my opinion. I, I'd like to hear <laughs> your take on it. What do you think about the notion of businessmen running for office? I mean, of course, we hope that there's a, a diversity of American life that ends up representing us in public life. But there's this idea out there that if you're a good businessman, you're going to make a good politician or a, or a good public leader. Uh, what do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, you know, it should really be dependent on on the person as opposed to their necessarily their experiences. Um, so as I said, I'm running against a lot of businessmen and they are, they'll say things like, this is how I know how to fix the economy because I'm a businessman. Well, let me guess it's lower regulations and less taxes. I mean, these, these things aren't all that complex. <laughs> um, the, 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 the policy prescriptions are out there. Um, you know, we, we differ on, whether you're on the right or the left on, on which policy, prescription, policy prescriptions you think are best for the economy. But um, you're not running to be CEO of the second district. You're, you're running to lead people. <laughs> Leader, leadership is not authority. Right. You know, and, and, I, and I think sometimes when you manage an office, you might, you might get confused about the difference between being a leader and being a manager and what it truly means to have authority and influence. And, you know, like I was saying before, like you guys don't follow me into the heat of battle because of the bars in my car. They follow you because they believe in you and they trust you. And you need that kind of credibility in any leadership role. And especially when you're representing the American people, I think that's so important. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying all CEOs don't have that. I'm just saying it's certainly not a prerequisite. And, it, and even if you're talking economic policies, it's not a prerequisite because, it, you know, the policy is different than managing your office and managing your business. Uh, I'm very pro-business. Don't get me wrong. And I'm, I'm very happy to see entrepreneurs creating jobs. I mean, they're the drivers of our economy, especially small businesses. But policy is different. All right. Like it's, you know, and you have to study these things in a, in a different way, right? Like what sort of the more expensive policies? How is it, how is regulatory policy actually written and by what agencies and, and how do they go about it? What are the cost benefit analyses they do? Those are the questions that you have to answer. Not so much, uh, you know, you're managing your office as, as, as you would. And, and, you know, and, and every quarter, you know, coming with, with different projections and, and, and profit goals, you know, all these things, there's a lot of things that go into business. There's a lot of things that go into policy and there's some overlap, but it's, 
it's uh, it, it depends on the person. It depends on their ability to lead and make a difference and influence. And, you know, again, we're all, me and my opponents will all probably agree on the policy prescriptions, right? We're all very conservative. Uh, what matters is who can get those things done and who can inspire more people to come to your side. That's influence. That's leadership. And uh, that I think I've learned a lot from uh, from the SEAL teams. Well, how do you think you would go about that, considering the very divisive political atmosphere we're living in today? Wow. Yeah. I, mean, I know. I, it's I a bit. It's a big question, but I mean, you'll be in the hot seat if you get elected, right? Right. Right. No. I mean, listen. You you do it first by by showing credibility for what you're talking about. Um, we one of my big things is is uh, speaking to the next generation, especially with respect to as, as being a conservative, you know, you could imagine uh, most young people uh, vote, you know, or lean left. And um, that, that worries me because I do believe that we have uh, a lot of the right ideas. I do believe that our values are good ones. And I do believe that we, we truly have um, the best interests of the country in mind. And I'm not so sure we're convincing people of that. And that's maybe mm-hmm. because we're electing people to represent us as, as conservatives with, with, with just less credibility than they really need um, to be up there. So if you're, you know, you elect a businessman or a lawyer, so what? What is it about this person that, that, uh, that proves to you that they really care about the country and then they care about their constituents? Like, I'm not so sure. Right, maybe they do, maybe they don't. Um, you know, I, I, I'd like to think that people look at my story and they know that truly oh, the only thing I care about is actually serving the American people. Um, and, and, and no matter what you do to me, whether you take my eye, like I'll, that's all I still want to do. Um, there's, there's really not a whole lot you can do to get in my way. So if it comes, if you're looking for somebody to fight for your values, then you can, you can be damn sure that it's, it's going to be me and that I'm going to be pretty effective at it. Um, I'm also one of the few people who's actually worked in federal government and really knows the issues well. So we're talking about national security, intelligence related issues, defense, you name it. You truly need experience in these things to be effective. These, these are, these are, these are not things that you can just sort of research on your own, develop your talking points and figure out because it does require years and years of classified briefings and actual experience on the ground to understand, um, I'm probably one of the few people in the race too, with a lot of pre-existing relationships on the Hill. Um, you know, I, I, I don't, I haven't, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I'm pretty sure I'm the only one with actual endorsements from sitting members of Congress. Uh, you need those relationships to get things done and people want to work with you when you have a proven track record of, of serving this country. Um, and even if they don't want to work with you, they at least want the, uh, you know, the publicly, I think they, they know that they need to, um, and, and I don't think that would be the case with my opponents. I don't think that they, I don't think they'll be able to inspire that kind of, uh, you know, you know, inspire that kind of uh, sense of cooperation and and get things done kind of attitude that I that I believe I can, and that I know I've done in the past, uh, working in the military and working across different federal agencies with State Department, intelligence community, um, you know, to get to get some major operations done. It's hard to talk about on a podcast, but <laughs> no, no, I understand. But I appreciate you kind of, you know, going at length on this. Um, it, it is one of the benefits, actually, of doing a podcast, and yeah. as opposed to television, is you know you can really articulate whatever it is you like to say. 
Um, I, I would like to shift over into um, national defense a little bit because I was reading, you know, your policy positions on your website, you know, to prepare for uh, this interview. And uh, you talk about ISIS on there. And, you know, we can see that ISIS is, I don't want to use the word defeated, but they've been crushed pretty good in Syria and Iraq. Um, they're nowhere near yeah. where they were at, say, two years ago. Um, what do you see as far as being our national defense priorities in the future? I mean, I don't think either of us are so naive as to think that international jihad is going away. Um, what, what, how would you, what would your approach to counterterrorism be, you know, say going over the next five years? Yeah, no, you're, you're right to say it's not going away anytime soon. Um, it, it, it has been nice to see this president really unleash the generals, so to speak, um, on ISIS and, you know, as you've probably seen uh, me, me talking to my friends in the, in the soft community, there there is an, an uplifting in morale and uh, the way they feel that they're they're treated and the way that they feel the administration has their back. And um, I think it's really been effective. Now that doesn't mean the ideology is going away anytime soon. If anything, it's it's still very much alive. Um, they simply don't hold territory, and uh, you know you, you you fight that by really removing the conversation away from arbitrary timelines and arbitrary troop levels. You know, we have to get, we have, we have to have people in leadership positions who are just honest with the American voter and say, listen, if, if you want to defeat these things, you have to maintain a presence. You cannot have right. um, power vacuums in, in, in states like Afghanistan or Iraq or Yemen. You just can't, you know, and, you, you you cannot pretend that we can like an ostrich like we stick our head in the sand and then and there's nothing going on out there. Uh, that's just it's unrealistic. Just endless endless deployments, no end in sight. Yeah, I mean, at least for the foreseeable future, there might be an end. I mean, but you know, American troops have been in South Korea and Germany and Japan since you know the Korean War and World War Two, and these these things turned out well. And I'm not saying. Those countries are really comparable to Iraq and Afghanistan, but but we we do have pretty good evidence, very very good evidence of what happens when you do leave power vacuums. Uh, you get ISIS, sure, and you get nine you get nine eleven. We we know that already. Now we don't. That doesn't mean we need one hundred two hundred thousand troops nation building. Um, I, I think we've we've tried that experiment, and it's. It, I don't think the American people have the patience for it. It was an honor to have Dan Crenshaw on before he became who he is today. And as a lot of people are saying, he's a future guy to look out for in politics in general. Uh, so thanks for coming on to Dan. Thanks to everybody who was on this year and that we included in this episode. Mike Vining, Ed Derrick, Pat McNamara, Will Cow. Mike we had on twice this past year. Ed we're going to have on for a second time. And once again, Pat we had on twice. Andrew we had on twice. So... They're just favorites, and that's why I included them here in this best of 2018. If you guys want to follow me, I'm on Twitter at Ian Scotto. Give me a follow at Ian Scotto. Love doing this for you guys week after week. And, of course, check out our website, softrepradio.com, as well as our Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. We'll be back next episode on Friday, and I'm out. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio.